0: doesn't seem to be any way of changing that. So we'll just have to change our reactions to it, huh? Only thing we can do. We'll have to start liking it. Well, maybe we have to think that would be much worse if it was snow and ice and asleep and hail. Well, we wouldn't like that at all. So maybe we can say, well, we like this better. We're going to talk about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. We've talked about the first one, first one, the body. Eh? And we have pretty well exhausted that, although one could say more about it, but we've pretty well exhausted the possibilities of getting at it the various ways of uh, um, contemplating it and becoming aware. And there are four altogether, four foundations, four ways of becoming mindful. So I'm not going to do them in the order one, two, three, four, but I'm going to go to number four. Now, number four are the contents of our thoughts. contents of the thoughts. And the first one, the body one, Kaya Nupasana, and the last one is uh, the uh, Dhamma Nupasana. Now that Pali word denotes a certain thing that we need to be aware of in our thoughts. And there are quite a whole string of do's and don'ts what we should have in our thoughts and what we shouldn't have. The first thing that we shouldn't have in our thoughts are the five hindrances. And they come in so many different guises that it's not easy to know what is happening. That's why we should be sure that we at least know these five hindrances by name so that we can recognize them. It's much easier to recognize something if you have a name to it. If you put a name to it, and when you have a name to it, you immediately have a a characteristic. So our five hindrances are, first one is the craving for the gratification of sensual desire. In other words, we'd like to have it pleasant. Like to have nice self-content. And the second one is called ill-will. So the first one, one can call greed, and the second one, one can call hate. But in the five hindrances, their names are like as such, as I've given. Gratification of sensual desire and ill-will. And these, of course, are our main problems, those two. And the third one is called sloth and torpor. Or also you can call it laziness and drowsiness. And obviously it's a feature of both, of greed and hate. It's a feature of greed. I like to have it comfortable and of hate. I don't really want to strain myself. So both are embedded in that and we find an enormous number of justifications for that particular one. The first two we don't even have to find justifications, we just do them automatically. But the third one we find justifications. Why we can't do what we actually know we should be doing. It's particularly one of those that we use Instead of daily meditating, instead of sitting down every day, morning and evening, and meditating, we have a string of explanations why we can't do that. Basically, it's all the third hindrance. That's all it is. And we will find out that there are, that in the um, factors of enlightenment, there's one that uh, is an antidote for that, and the fourth one is worry and restlessness. Now, worry is m- very much about what we call our personal problems, mm-hmm. the future, how it's going to work out, achievement syndrome, result thinking, what I want to become, what I think I'm not yet. And restlessness is that uh, feature that we have within us where we're not uh, contented and satisfied. So uh, these are all very normal human reactions, but that doesn't mean that they make anybody happy. In fact, they make everybody unhappy. But most people have no way of knowing what it's like to be without them or without at least one of them or two of them. So one considers, most people consider it, to be the normal way of being. And the uh, justifications or the arguments are, yes, but everybody's doing it, or one must have some way of becoming something, or uh, if you don't worry about things, how are you going to approach them? And all these kind of things that will uh, tell the mind that it's all right what we're doing. But the only criteria, whether it's all right what we're doing or not, is whether we have inner happiness and peace. Independent of outer conditions. Whether the things we like are actually happening or not. Nothing to do with it. So that's the only criteria, whether what we're doing is okay. And if it isn't, if we don't have inner peace and happiness, that doesn't mean that we now have to change our living quarters or change our partner or change our diet or change our teacher or anything like that. It just means that we've got to change our reactions. That's all. And as soon as we do that, it's all different everything is different so that's the only criteria to use am i really peaceful and happy no matter what happens out there and obviously the answer has to be no because only the other hand the enlightened one is peaceful and happy no matter what happens out there but the next question can be also how often am i not peaceful and happy half the day every day Three quarters of the day, the whole day, every second day, find out. And nobody needs to know about this, only yourself. And the more you realize that the inner peace and happiness are escaping you, the more important it becomes to do something about these hindrances. So that was the fourth one restlessness, worry and restlessness. And the fifth one is called Skeptical Doubt. Skeptical Doubt is traditionally uh, said to be about the uh, Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. That's a traditional way of looking at it. There are so many traditional ways of looking at things. Um, There is the difficulty of, first of all, that language changes its value system for instance the word mistress used to mean the lady of the house then it used to mean uh, somebody that one had an affair with, with his mistress, and now we don't use it at all who uses the word mistress nobody language changes its value system And it changes it very, very quickly. Not just over thousands of years, but over just decades it changes it. And uh, we have lots of words like that, but I'm just going to use this one as an example because it's uh, very clear. So this business about the skeptical doubt uh, in the scriptures, it says about the enlightenment of the Buddha, the veracity of the Dhamma, and the... uh, Um, ability of the sangha to propagate it for us. Well, of course people do have doubts, naturally, until they have found out themselves. But the worst doubt, and the most insidious doubt that we get, is doubt about ourselves, about our own capacity, and our own ability to actually follow such a lofty path which leads to enlightenment the doubt about our own ability, and also the doubt, which also often comes up, that one can live in the world while pursuing this path. That's a very um, uh, common consideration that people have. Because the life in the world is geared towards greed and hate, wanting and not wanting. And this path is geared towards the opposite. So can one actually live in the world pursuing this path? Naturally, one can. In fact, one can be a great boon to those people that one has anything to do with it because they can learn that it's possible to be different without any great uh, problems or any problems arising but the difficulty that uh, the practitioner encounters is the influence of the people that one is connected with that one has dealings with and everything that these people think and say and do because it's just the opposite of the Dhamma. And if we get enough influence because of the fact that we want to be supported by them we can't practice properly. It happens again and again. We practice, so to say, on the outer edges. Sit down and meditate a bit. Look at the Dhamma book now and then. Uh, Remember that there's dukkha when it gets too bad. Might even remember that things change. But that's not enough, is it? The world does the opposite. Just exactly the opposite. And this was the reason why the Buddha said after his enlightenment teaching will be a vexation for me because there, people can't do this. It's too difficult for them to change their mind. And then he saw that there were some people who were wide open for this. But that's the ones he tried to teach them. And he found quite a number of those. We have the same difficulty. And this is the insidious doubt, can I really do this? Is it worth my while to do it? Again, the only criteria is, am I happy? Am I peaceful or am I reactive? What am I doing? Or am I looking around, searching for something that's gonna give me what I want? Or have I already understood that nobody and nothing can give me what I want, that I've got it all inside of me, and that all I have to do is let go of everything that's cluttering it up. So these five are, are called the five hindrances. They are, so to say, our enemies. And... They are constantly available. They don't just come on certain days or when there are certain situations, but they are part and parcel of the human heart and mind. The Buddha has similes for them, which makes it maybe a little easier to remember them. It's very important to remember them. If we we don't remember them, we can't really do anything about them. The first one, the uh, gratification of sensual desire as compared to being in debt. We are in debt to our senses. We want to pay off this debt by getting pleasant sense contacts. And obviously, since all sense contacts are very short-lived, We have to keep on paying with interest. And if we don't do anything about it, we'll still be paying on our deathbed. We'll still want it pleasant, rather than most unpleasant at the time. So we can do something now about it, which doesn't mean, and I want to warn uh, about this misunderstanding, which does arise uh, frequently. That the Buddha means we shouldn't have pleasant sense contact, he doesn't. We have both. We have pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes the weather is just right and it's okay. And sometimes it's too hot and sometimes it's too cold. And all the other sense contact. Sometimes okay and sometimes not. But what arises out of this understanding that this is about being in debt and that we can never satisfy our inner yearning through our sense contact. Arising out of that comes a letting go of a constant search for the pleasant sense contact. It also is a letting go of the um, idea that the world has in it somewhere, if I could just find it, perfection, utopia. If I only eat the right things, think the right things, meet the right people, and then the next step is I'm imagining I'm doing it. Everything is great. And why do I still not feel peaceful if everything is so great? Why are there still problems? It's imagination. The world is not paradise. The world is not utopia. The world is sense contact. Some of it pleasant, some of it unpleasant. Some of it neutral, of course. And necessary for this body to live in That's all the world is. Nothing more. We need it. We need to make a living so we can eat and have a roof over our heads. But that isn't going to satisfy the yearning for peace and for inner stability and completeness. So what we need to recognize is that running after pleasantness Believing everything is okay doesn't help and hoping everything is going to be okay or trying to find that which is nice, none of that helps. When we have pleasant sense contact, we're grateful for it. And when we have unpleasant sense contact, we see in it a learning situation. That's all. It's really very simple. Well, we don't make up stories. Now, this is not so uncommon. Some people make up stories. They don't really see what's going on. They see what they would like to see. And imagination and reality never come together. There's always a gap in between. Because of that, there's no peace. And reality always falls short of imagination. Now, well, not everybody does that. Some people have more imagination for how, how they think things are than others. Others have more imagination in the negative sense. They think everything is just horrible or well, it's just as wrong. Also doesn't come together with reality, I suppose. So, our, the change which comes about when we don't run after these um, pleasant sense contacts is the understanding that they come and they go. We don't have to look for them. They arise. And when they're there, we don't have to try and keep them. They stay just as long as any of the sense contact is able to stay. We can't look at the same thing forever, neither hear it, taste it, touch it, or smell it. It's all very short-lived. It doesn't bring satisfaction. But while it is happening, when it's pleasant, it gives a certain pleasure to us, which we can be grateful for. But if we don't run after them and try to find them, we open up a lot of energy and time, which we can use more profitably. And also, if our sense contacts, the pleasant ones, if we grateful for them but don't want to hang on to them and don't want to repeat them it's a pure sense contact and has far more impact because trying to hang on to it and trying to keep it or trying to repeat it is an interruption of the uh, pleasure just think of uh, seeing a beautiful sunset now, if you look at this beautiful sunset, no person in their right mind would try and keep that sunset there. Everybody knows it's going to go within minutes. So you're not trying to keep it. But, probably, most likely thinking, I'd like to see that again, it." So it's already an impurity put into the experience. Whereas if you just have the experience without any of those extraneous matters, thoughts, then the experience becomes one of unity consciousness, where you and the sunset become one. And then it has a real feeling of fulfilling oneself, very short-lived, but at least at that time. I've talked about that already, but it is here again uh, pertinent. So, the gratification of sensual desire is something that um, everybody lives with. And some people have more problem with it than others. Those that have less problem with the gratification of sensual desire then have more problem with the next one will. We, uh, in the Abhidhamma, the Pugala Panyata which is uh, a book of the Abhidhamma where the different characters of people are described, the main classification that it starts out with is greed characters and hate characters. Now, greed characters are easier to live with and have a nicer life because they are always hoping something nice is going to happen. So they are always living in hope and uh, which makes them a little more uh, tractable and uh, easier to get along with. The hate character thinks everything is awful and not only everything but everybody very difficult to live with and uh, finds life very difficult but can be relied upon to practice whereas the greed character not the greed character cannot be relied upon because there are too many pleasant sensations that the greed carrier dream, uh, character dreams of and uh, tries to find so both have their Positive and negative sides, the uh, hate character is definitely someone who will practice because it's very un- unpleasant to have that feeling of hate within. It's like burning, it's a burning sensation and um, very um, um, anxiety producing and restlessness producing. Now, this doesn't mean that the Greek character hasn't got any hate nor that the hate character has got any greed. Not at all. We all have all five. It just means that one is more prevalent than the other. That's all. It comes to the poor more often. Now if we can recognize which one of those we are, we know where we have to do the most work. And uh, it's not difficult to recognize how our minds usually uh, behave. So this is the the first one is uh, the simile is for being in debt. And the second one, the ill will, or hate, dislike, the uh, simile is a bilious disease, a bile coming up. Well, it's very fitting, isn't it? One certainly feels ill at ease when one has ill will and again our problems with these things are that we justify both of them we cannot distinguish mostly cannot distinguish between need and greed and that's something we really need to learn to distinguish between need and greed it's uh, not an easy thing to do Because, particularly when we live in a fairly uh, well-to-do society, where so many things are taken for granted, which are designed for nothing but comfort, we take it for granted that we ought to have them. Well, ought we really? It's an investigation. Or are we very lucky that we do have certain things and can be grateful for them? Gratitude is a very important aspect of the practice and should be developed as much and often as possible. It's also one of the loving-kindness meditations, a very um, important one. One can start one's meditation with a few moments of gratitude that one is able to do this, that one has the opportunity and the surroundings, the companions, the teacher, all these things that one can be grateful for. It helps to concentrate the mind. So when we look at our um, inner situation, we can easily find which one of these two makes things more difficult for us. And we will probably find um, that there is um, alternate uh, movement, sometimes this, sometimes that. But if we look more closely, we will see that one of them is more often represented. Either the greed one or the hate one. And uh, having this dis-ease, this ill-at-ease of ill-will, we have to, if we want to be peaceful and happy, we have to let go of every justification. There is no justification. There are things wrong in the world. Well, of course there are. It's not paradise out there. It's not even paradise within the heart. Sure, there are things wrong. But is there anybody to blame? Is there anything that we can do about it? If there is, well, let's go and do it. But if there isn't, why even think about it? If something touches us personally, where somebody is um, unpleasant or we don't get what we want, well, what else is there to do except to look at it and say, well, it's the way things are at this moment. And they too will change. So it's compared to bilious disease. The uh, third one, sloss and is compared to being in prison, one can't do much. One is the imprisonment. Obviously we have our own key, but sometimes we don't feel like using it or don't quite know how to use it. Some people are not so bothered by this one. One can say that sloth and torpor is a hindrance which the people who have more greed have more problem with but that's a generalization. It need not be always so, but it's a general statement and can often be true. And then there is the fourth one, worry and restlessness, and that's considered or uh, compared to being a slave, for being pushed here and there by worry. We worry about the most um, absurd things, for instance, People worry about their old age, and they might die when they're young. It's really laughable. And some people worry about, for instance, about the the government, what they're going to do. Any point in worrying about this? Some people worry about the atomic bomb. Some people worry about the slaughter of animals. The only thing that has any productiveness in it is if we can actually do something. In German there is a very nice verse not by the Buddha, but by one famous um, uh, writer. But in English it doesn't make a verse. But the meaning is, there is nothing good unless we do it. In German it's, uh, it's a verse, es gibt nichts Gutes, außer man tut es. And it's a very important thing to remember. A very famous German writer. Uh, wrote that what is there to think about if we can do it do it if we can't that's it we aren't almighty and you know we only know that where we put our mind and from that maybe you can already fathom that most people put their mind in the wrong places. For instance, on worry. Worry is uh, very much bound up with ambition. Am I going to get what I want? Very much bound up with um, uh, the uh, achievement syndrome of result thinking, with becoming something rather than being what in heaven's name do we want to become we are and if we can't be we won't become either because only that being now is the foundation for becoming for instance enlightenment only being now is is possible nothing so worry is putting one's mind in the wrong place, sp- in the wrong place, about all the wrong things, which are constantly concerned with me and mine, my family, my body, maybe my country, my neighbors, or whoever, whatever we are thinking of. Totally unnecessary. Being a slave. People who do that have no way of finding happiness at all, because the mind gets very much accustomed to doing that. So the simile is being a slave. And the last one, the simile, is a travel in the desert without provisions and without a road map, going around in circles. Doubt makes one go around in circles. Doubt is also very much bound up with indecision. Is this better or is that better? Can I do it? Can I not do it? That's doubt. And uh, so it goes around in circles in the mind. It's very debilitating because we we would, in, in such a case, think about the same thing over and over and over. Extremely boring, I would say. These five finances are part of our mind state. And they are the ones that we should be aware of and try to substitute with their opposites. Now That happens as we learn in meditation to substitute all discursive thinking or as much of it as we can with attention to the meditation subject again and again. We do that over and over again. Now in daily living we have the opportunity to substitute any of these hindrances and all their derivatives with their opposites with the wholesome ones now obviously for instance ill will has as a derivative fear and desire for sensual gratification has as a derivative feeling uncomfortable and reacting to that. I mean, there are any number of small matters that are all can all be put under these five headings. The, um, the justifications which we bring up, they show us which one of the derivatives we were using. I mean, if we, for instance, are worrying about something, and we justify it with, well, if I don't worry about it, nobody else will. That's something you hear very often, huh? Then the question is, why should anybody worry about it? So the justification that we bring up is, shows us that we actually want to use our mind in this way which means that we're using the mind wrongly. And anything that we use the mind wrongly, the criteria is, does it make me happy? Am I really happy? Most people don't even know what it's like to be happy without a cause. They know they're happy if somebody gives them a present, or if somebody praises them, or if they have some success. But that's about all they know, how to be happy to have inner happiness because the Dhamma has arisen within most people have no idea how to do that so worry or anxiety or restlessness or uh, indecision or fear or um, uh, cravings desires they all belong under these five main headings and the criteria is always does this particular mind state make me happy, or doesn't it? And if it doesn't, well, must be something wrong with it. Where does it belong? Into which one of these five categories does it belong? So then, as we have learned in meditation to substitute, we do that in daily living. Again and again and again. And if we actually want to practice a spiritual path, if we don't substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome we haven't started yet we can meditate every day morning an hour evening an hour if we don't substitute our unwholesome thoughts with the wholesome ones in daily living there's no spiritual path it's all wishful thinking there's a lot of wishful thinking going on in the spiritual path because you can't grab it you know There's nothing solid that you can aim on to. There's a lot of wishful thinking going on. But if you actually do substitute, you don't have to wish. It's happening. That is what's happening. You can't do anything more important. Because once you even do it once or twice, you recognize that we don't have to keep our minds where they were we can put them somewhere else. The Buddha was asked once whether he's omniscient. He said, no. He doesn't know everything at once. He knows whatever he puts his mind on. It's the same for us, as far as our knowing goes. Wherever we put our mind, that's what we know. So, if, for instance, we, we put our mind on wanting something, Desiring, well, that's what we know. We know sensual desire. And if we don't take care and change that, we believe, of course, that this is the way it ought to be. And not only that, but everybody's doing it, and I might even have a chance to gratify the desire. So, and it's uh, maybe quite a pleasant uh, thought, but it's also dukkha producing because am i going to get the desire and if i've got it can i keep it and the answer is of course no i can't nobody can keep anything everything is constant movement so instead of keeping the mind on the desire which is only creating anxiety within The anxiety being the dukkha, the anxiety being, I want to get it, I want to grab it, I want to have it and I want to keep it. We can do several things. The first thing is, and which is the most difficult, but which is the most effective, is to drop it, let go of it. But it's the most difficult. Only the trained mind can do that. The trained mind can drop whatever it doesn't want to hang on to. That's the first possibility and the second possibility is to change it into instead of wanting to have wanting to give that makes a world of difference we may not be able to give exactly that what we were craving for but everybody has something to give time money, things, attention, love, support. Everybody's got something to give. So instead of wanting to have something, wanting to give. The desire for the sensual gratification immediately vanishes, has to, because we can't do two things at once. Very favorable. We can always come back to it, of course, but we can't do two things at once. So we have changed. Now that's the second possibility. And the third one, if we can't do that, if we can neither drop nor change or substitute, then what we need to do is think of something entirely different, unrelated, which has no desire in it so that the mind gets away from this unwholesomeness and quietens down, becomes peaceful and can then try again to be giving instead of wanting. This is sort of an intermittent step. It's an uh, help on the way and sometimes can be uh, very useful. So if we can't change our... I would like this to happen. I would like um, somebody to approve of me and appreciate me. And instead of changing that immediately into the opposite of giving approval and appreciation, we can't do it, it doesn't work. Think of a beautiful meadow with flowers. The mind quietens down. It has nothing to do with what you were thinking of before the quicker we let go of any of the hindrances the less of a rut they make in their mind and the easier it is to avoid them the longer we hang on to them and most people hang on to them all their lives and have no idea that they could let go of them we call, sometimes we uh, have people that we call professional worriers i mean they just worry And they've been doing it for so long, they think one has to do that. Usually, yes, they've done it long enough, one can see it in their faces, they don't have to say a word. Um, The quicker we let go, the better. So, one of three possibilities. The first one is the most difficult one, just dropping it. The second one is substitution with the opposite, that's what the Buddha calls it. And the third one is to think of some totally unrelated subject which is pleasing to the mind. Now the same applies, of course, to the other hindrances. When there's ill will, the substitution with the opposite would be loving-kindness and compassion. Not easy to do, eh? When we are just getting angry at somebody, and the mind actually remembers that this is not a very good thing to do and then to be, love that person have compassion for that person may not be possible compassion is usually a bit easier um, so it may be necessary to again do that intermittent step when we have the third one the sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness The most important thing is our own willpower and I will talk about willpower at another time because it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Without willpower there is no path. There is an occasional remembrance of the past and an occasional drawing near to it because one has agreed that it's a good thing. But willpower is that which makes us overcome our natural gravitational resistances, <laughs> and without willpower, it won't work. <laughs> so that's the the the, uh, the opposite for that. And again, if we find ourselves in the throes of Floss and torpor and can't drop it and there isn't enough willpower Get to something else and try again Like when the mind is saying for instance, I don't want to meditate It's too hot. It's too early. It's too late I can't be bothered my knees hurt or whatever Think of something very nice that happened in meditation at one stage or another and then try again and the fourth one the worry and restlessness well, of course the restlessness is due to the fact that we haven't found what we really want namely inner peace and inner joy and the worry is about putting the mind in the wrong place so it takes a fair bit of uh, doing to be able to drop either one of those, and uh, if we aren't skilled at that yet, and it does take time to become skilled at that, the opposite of worry, and the substitute for that, would be the remembrance and the understanding of impermanence. What's there to worry about? That's what I'm worrying about this moment. is not going to happen in another moment in this way. There aren't two light moments. And the person that's worrying is not the one who's going to actually experience it either. We they are never the same two moments in a row. If you think instead of worry of impermanence, you've got a good substitution. And restlessness, the same also, impermanence. And the one with the doubt, well, obviously, the opposite of that is confidence. And now confidence does arise when one has done any of these things, when one has substituted. Confidence arises to a great extent in the second meditative absorption, but if one hasn't got there yet, then one needs to use these substitutions to gain confidence in one's own mental ability. Mental ability means that the mind is capable of doing what we want it to do and we don't allow it to run away with us and just do whatever comes into the mind. Usually we allow that. We just allow it to do whatever comes into the mind. And a lot of very unwieldy and unpleasant things happen because of that in the world because people believe what they are thinking and just go ahead and do it and life doesn't have a feel of um, security and safety and uh, solidity and uh, being it's always sort of on the edge, teetering on the edge, sort of uh, not not feeling at, at ease because of the fact that there's no confidence. Confidence, first of all, in our own ability. Confidence that we have found the most wonderful path which will actually be able to eliminate all dukkha, and are following the highest ideal that kind of confidence can give on a great deal of uh, feeling of solidity the buddha said the dhamma protects the dhamma practitioner we protect it by knowing that the dhamma is that which has our priority And whenever we have any kind of a a, a doubt that comes in, oh, maybe I should do something else, and there are so many things offered, Uh, maybe I should try them. A lifetime isn't long enough, by the way, to try them all. There's too much of stuff going on. And any time we feel that we may not be able to live up to what the Buddha taught, all we need to do is... Go within and find within us that feeling of lovingness and the feeling of being actually present. Everybody's got it. If we find those feelings, lovingness and being present, we neither worry nor do we have insidious doubt about anything. We know we're here. That's all we need to know. If we didn't have all these other ideas, it'd all be very simple. We're here for a limited time, and that's it. Also, when doubt or restlessness arise, it's very often due to the fact that we think we've got to prove something investigate who do you have to prove anything to and what do you have to prove. We're here. We don't have to prove anything. That's enough proof that we're there. It can be seen and touched and heard sometimes. Oh, that's enough. Now, the substitution with the opposite is that what belongs to Four of the 37 factors of enlightenment the four great efforts Pali the Patanas, and the formula I'll just say the traditional formula not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. And that means nothing else other than what I've just explained. If we can be without the hindrances, that'd be better. If they have already arisen, don't continue with them. As quickly as possible, change them. If there is the wholesomeness then, that you have changed to, keep it going. Now, this is for daily living. And I repeat, without that, there's no spiritual path. If we don't do something about those hindrances, spirituality is something in books, what other people do, what we're hoping for, that we're projecting. Unless we do it, there's nothing we can really um, substitute for this doing if we do it then we're practicing now obviously people forget They uh, have a daily confrontations and they forget what happened like somebody takes the last parking spot and they get angry about it you no know, type of thing but because there is time We don't have to get out of the car and start yelling right away. So there's time to consider this. The more often we remember that all we're doing with this anger is making bad karma for ourselves, the easier it will be to drop it, to substitute it, to let go of it, or to use a temporary measure of going somewhere with the mind. Now, this is an important aspect of this um, mind-content mindfulness. Now, the mindfulness on mind-content concerns many other things, not just what I've talked about, but these are the negative aspects with which we all have to deal, and they all make bad karma, and this is something which is important to remember and to know. Because I like to make, um, to do a contemplation on karma. We need to remember that every thought we have makes karma. The mind is the one that triggers it all. So if we have a thought of any of those five hindrances, we are making bad karma. Making bad karma can only bring bad results. And what's the first bad result that it brings? Unhappiness. Who is happy when they're worrying or restless? When they're uh, doubting and not decisive? When they're angry, when they're craving? when there's loss for Nobody's happy that way. So that's the first resultant which comes immediately. We don't have to think that karma is something that happens last life or next life. It happens immediately. If we are angry at somebody, we're immediately unhappy. We're immediately ill at ease. There's no way we have to wait for another life for that. That'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? And yet, it's often misunderstood. Literally translated, the word karma means action. But the Buddha said, no, it's not action. It's intention. Karma, O oh monks, I declare, is intention. So, it's what we have intentionally in the mind. Now, very often, Yes, primarily people think this is just happening in their mind. It's not just happening. It's an untrained mind that they're not able to change and substitute with something else. So, if we have any of those hindrances in our mind, the resultant is immediate. Now, that the resultant may also have other repercussions, is clear. For instance, if we get angry, the next step may be that we say something, which doesn't sound so good. We may try to use proper language, because we're still fairly in command of ourselves, but the feeling behind the word is definitely angry. So, what happens? What we say is heard by the one we talk to and that person, not having practiced very long either, also gets angry. So, we've got two angry people. The Buddha compared anger to picking up hot coals with one's, their hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. Now, it's quite possible that the other person has practiced and knows when to duck. And then we are left with the burns in our hand, because the one who picks up these hot coals is the one that burns first. It's more likely that the other person hasn't practiced either long enough, and so that the hot coals actually find their target. Well, what did we do then? Now, meanwhile, we haven't only thought negatively and made bad karma that way, we've also made bad karma through speech, which is a little more, a little heavier karma, speech, and then it may actually come into some action. We may actually do something which is detrimental to the well-being of another person, and that's the heavier, the heavier karma. But it all, all starts in the mind. We don't have to go to speech, we don't have to go to action. All we need to know is what are we thinking. And if that thinking is unwholesome, we must remember we're making bad karma. And bad karma, the resultant always comes back to us, never to somebody else. See, now, if we make somebody else angry, that is their karma. We are the trigger, which is bad karma for us. But if they get angry, also, they're making bad karma. So this happens practically all the time, because nobody has practiced enough to see and to recognize the fact that we have to watch our own karma. If we don't, if we don't watch our own karma and be careful with it every day from morning to night, the resultant in our daily living will not be very um, mean If we haven't been generous enough, we will be lacking support. If we haven't been kind enough, we'll be lacking kindness which we are looking for, and all the rest of it. So, it is also helpful, although we cannot find the cause and the effect exactly, and it's useless to look for that, we can still investigate what is most lacking in our daily life. What do we actually really feel as a lack? And then see whether, because it's usually something we want to get, whether we ourselves can provide it. Now, if we're lacking love, we have to provide love. If we're lacking generosity from others, we have to provide generosity. It's so simple. And the whole world unless they've heard the buddha's teaching it knows nothing about it it's so utterly simple and works without fail and yet it always comes as a surprise naturally it comes as a surprise because it goes 180 degrees against hate and greed it's just the opposite. So any of the things that we feel we're not having, that's what we need to bring up ourselves. And immediately it will be there. Now all you need is, for instance, the example of love. If you feel, for instance, as an example, that there isn't enough love in your life, There's nobody there who loves you really, Well, you bring up love in your own heart and what have you got? Love. So simple. You don't have to look for anybody to love you. You've got it. You've got it in your own heart. Naturally, it has to be the kind of love which is impersonal as a quality of the heart because you can't run around trying to find somebody who's lovable. It's just the quality of the heart. But once you put it in the quality of the heart, it's there in yourself. Then you never lack it. It's there. It doesn't matter who else is there. Or whether that person who is there is loving you enough or not. Or loving you at all or not. Or nobody is there to love. Or that person is not so lovable. Which is usually a problem, isn't it? It's got nothing to do with anything. You have love in the heart and you give it out and that's it. Got it. And the same applies to everything else. Everything else that you might be lacking, that's what you have to bring up yourself. Making karma is one of the very important aspects of daily living. Now, obviously, meditating is making good karma, because the intention is a pure one. Listening to Dhamma is making good karma. But what we have in the mind, that's the basis for our karma. That's the most important thing. And karma, make the making of karma, obviously also is something that goes from life to life, but we don't need to be concerned with that. So what happened in last life? Well, does it really matter? You're stuck with it, whatever it was. You're here and you're stuck with it. Can you undo it? No. Do you even know about it? No. Why should we even think about it? Okay, now what's going to happen next life? Do we know? No, we don't. Is there anything that really touches us now? No. So the only thing that matters is making good karma today. And then whenever today happens, now is today, and then there comes another day which is called today, and another day is called today, that's all that matters. Making good karma today. And that happens in the mind. Obviously, it then translates into speech and action. But if it hasn't happened in the mind first, it can't translate can't translate into anything that we say nor into any action. We also have to watch our intention. As long as we have the me illusion, that me illusion will be embedded in our intention. All right, nothing we can do about it. It's okay. Let it be there. Can't take it out anyway. He's got to first to come enlightened, then you can take it out. So it's there. That's fine. What we need to watch is that we don't kid ourselves. That we don't think we want to do something good, and actually, that the intention behind it is to be important. It can be both. Well, that's mitigating circumstances. At least both is there. But it can also be only the one. And if it's only the one, desist. Don't do it. It doesn't bring anything. I think that story I told you, where this woman took me into the house, which was obviously a charitable act, and did save my life, but because she had the wrong intention, she didn't get what she wanted. She didn't get a household help. all she get was God was another creature there that needed attention, so I think that's a typical example of an outward good act which had the wrong intention behind it, a selfish intention, so it's mm, But, again, in her case, both happened, the good and the bad karma, both happened. And we often have that too. It's all right. But if it's only wanting to be important or proving something to somebody, then don't. Because then the bad karma is overshadowing the good. But if it's both, if we're making good and bad karma, we're going to get both results, good and bad results. They don't sort of um, uh, dissolve into each other. It's not like a credit and debit balance in the bank. You you owe some money, you put the money in and then it's zero. It's not like that. You get both. You get the debit and the credit. And uh, very often the question which arises in that connection is um, killing an animal that is uh, suffering because one doesn't like it to suffer. It's killing, huh? And one doesn't want the animal to suffer. So it's making both karmas, good and bad. Bad karma for killing, good karma for don't want the animal to suffer. That's just the way it is. What we need to do is watch the mind. And then, as the mind, through the meditation, becomes calmer and clearer, we also see much clearer about our karma-making. And we can be far more um, careful The way the words come out is grounded in the way the person feels and the way the person thinks. You can use exactly the same words and make them come out totally different. Sometimes you can even see that on TV. Politics, dreadful business on TV and they're saying the same things they're all saying the same things but it comes out differently it depends on who's saying it and the same with us we may be saying the same thing but it comes out differently so we have to watch what goes on with them once we have been watching for some years and substituting for some years and have seen the veracity of all this what the buddha teaches there's very little danger that we may continue with the negativity it just doesn't arise it just doesn't happen it it doesn't matter what happens out there i already gave you the example of that the games that little children play. We play with them but we don't take them seriously. They're just games. The main thing is inner peace, inner happiness, security, solidity, a feeling of being grounded within oneself, centred, knowing what the centre is. Not me, not mine. But First of all, before we get any further, the unity with everything, not this separation. Now obviously the unity is not the end of the line, but for the moment it should suffice. We're going to do a contemplation, before we do we like to stand up and stretch your legs. and please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. I'd like you to think of the karma you have made today and yesterday, and maybe the day before with your thoughts try to recall what kind of karma did I make with my thoughts and was I aware that I was making karma? and the third question when they were negative did I try to change them? now any thought that you can remember today yesterday or the days before can you see and recognize the result of it within yourself for the negative thought the result of anxiety dislike for the positive thought the result of ease and well-being? Can you see that and recognize it? Even if you can remember just one or two thoughts, Now, can you go back in your mind to the past in this life and recognize any important decisions or important happenings where you had to make a definite decision? And remembering and knowing that decision, can you see the resultant? support system that your good intentions are providing for your life. Look at your good intentions, the ones you know about, and see whether you recognize that they are a support system. And now have a look inside of yourself and see whether you can find anyone or all of the five hindrances and their manifestations. Just take a look how they manifest. and then have a look to see whether you can see the resultant Have a look to see whether you can remember in daily living that giving in to any of the five finances means making bad karma. We can actually impress the mind with that. And now investigate whether you have already tried to substitute any of the hindrances with their opposites. Wanting to have with giving ill-will with loving loss and torpor with willpower restlessness with impermanence and doubt with confidence. Have a look and see whether you've already done that at times, whether you found it easy or difficult, whether you can continue to do it. Just take a look And now take a look, what your priorities are, as far as your intentions go in this lifetime. What's most important? Today is the first day of the rest of our lives. What are my intentions? can you investigate what would be the best way of making my intention really happen And have another look to see how close have I been living to these intentions which I'm now aware of, how much change do I need to make them priority. mental formations, your thoughts, arising and ceasing, and make a determination to make good karma with them.